Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinsing. This is episode 577. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Girl Flowers. Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgirlflowers.com. Our first sponsor thanks goes to Store It Cold, creators of the revolutionary CoolBot, a popular solution for flower farmers, studio florists, and farmer florists. You can save thousands when you build your own walk-in cooler with the CoolBot and an air conditioner. Don't have time to build your own? They also have turnkey units available. You can learn more at storeitcold.com. Well, you're in for a real treat today with my conversation featuring Janet Kramka of Backyard Blooms, based in Trumbull, Connecticut. In August, Janet and I participated in a webinar hosted by New York's Madison Square Park Conservancy's Horticultural Lecture Series. It was all about the Slow Flowers movement, and it was really fun to share the screen with a Slow Flowers member who is walking the talk in her practices as a small-scale farmer florist. Through that experience, I became fascinated with Janet's personal story of pivoting to a second career after working in the graphic design field. She recorded a special video tour of Backyard Bloom's Backyard in Connecticut, where she mostly grows annuals and dahlias in raised beds. You can watch that video by logging on to today's show notes for episode 577, and you'll see the video tour and more photos of Janet's flowers and farm at slowflowerspodcast.com for episode 577. It's really impressive to see the scale of what she has built with the land available to her. Backyard Blooms grows and sells custom bouquets, flower subscriptions, and DIY buckets direct to consumers, as well as maintaining a presence at the popular Trumbull Farmer's Market. They offer wholesale flowers to florists through the Connecticut Flower Collective. Today's conversation focuses on Backyard Bloom's services, customer base, and regional market. As Janet writes on her website, what started as a love of nature and gardening has blossomed into our small but mighty family farm, where we are committed to growing flowers sustainably and organically. Our blooms are local, unique, and grown with great care for florists, designers, and anyone who delights in the beauty of flowers. I love that sentiment. Let's jump right in and meet Janet Kramka of Backyard Blooms. I'll share all her social places in our show notes. Hi, 
Hi, everybody. This is part two of our uh, feature about Backyard Blooms. And I'm so excited to welcome Janet Kramka. You just saw her in this wonderful video tour that she created for us. And now we're going to talk a little bit about your business, Janet. Hi. It is great to have you here. And um, by way of background, I should just mention when you first joined Slow Flowers, I was like, I know where Trumbull, Connecticut is because I went to kindergarten in Trumbull, Connecticut, yeah. which is, uh, so in my mind, you're in the house I grew up in. Yeah. <laughs> At least the town. Yeah. Yeah. We were only there until, I don't know, a year and a half until we moved to Southern California. So it's a distant memory, but it's, it's yeah. really wonderful to kind of know where you are. Um, you talked about your size of your growing area. You talked about the zone you're in. Um, but uh, I want to just ask you about your business and kind of your path. Um, and I will just say, we uh, both participated in a webinar that took place on August 18th with the um, uh, Madison Square Park Gardens in New York and for their online horticulture program. I think by the time this episode airs, Janet, we'll be able to get the replay video and share that with people too. Oh, good. Okay. Which was really fun. I thought it was. Yeah, it was. It was, it was a great, really cool. I mean, it was virtual, but it was, I think it, we got our point across. Yes. Yeah. Well, so we've seen your fabulous backyard. You know what? You talked about it being a 2,500 square feet. And then you mentioned that you think that's like less than a, eighth of an acre, but it feels, it feels large to me when I see you standing next to rows of flowers that are taller than you, it feels very abundant. Yes, it does. I had the same impression. I went back and looked at some photos from when we first started and I thought, oh, look how little we were when we were just four rows. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, the next year we added another four and then we added another four, then we added a couple more. And so, yeah, when I'm back there, when I, first of all, when I saw that photo, when we were just four rows, I said to my husband, oh, remember when we had a lawn? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Gone now. So it does feel that way to me when I'm out there. I'm, I'm short. I'm only five foot one, but a lot of the flowers are taller than I am. So that's part of it too. I feel like I'm in a jungle when I'm there. I love it. It's like your secret garden. Yeah. Um, So when you did uh, mention that you've got these rows and they are kind of like raised beds. I thought maybe you should talk a little bit about how you had to choose to grow in that method because of the type of soil you have. Yes. So originally we had a little vegetable garden and that was even with the, that was ground level. And that's where we started our farm. What we didn't realize at the time was that that was really the only spot in the yard where there wasn't rock ledge, which is very common to Connecticut. Connecticut is covered with, with rock ledge. And we live on a hill. We're at the top of the hill. So I think we're even more prone to it there. So we had that original bed. And then the next year we wanted to add four more rows. And my husband dug down and about six inches in, he hit rock. And then he tried another spot, you know, all over this area. And he just kept hitting rock. And, And I said, now what do we do? Right. You know, you can't. You were all ready to expand your flower operation. <laughs> yeah, we uh, were, and so he said, "Well, we're going to have to build up." So the raised beds were done out of necessity. I think it makes things a little more complicated. We've got to get the drip irrigation up and over the ledge. It makes 
the caterpillar tunnels that we use a little more complicated to stake. So it's definitely fussier, but it's just, you know, you do what you have to do Mm -hmm. to make something work. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thankful we could do that. So he put in four rows via a raised bed. The expense was now we had to fill that with dirt. So that was, you know, a bit of an expense and, um, but but that worked okay. And then when we wanted to add another four, we then it was like, oh boy, are we going to hit ledge again? And we did. So then the next four that came, we had to do a raised bed again. So wow. So what's the material? Is it are they timbers or uh, brick? What do you? What is the kind of contain the the, the border of the raised bed? I believe they're. I want to say two by eight mm-hmm. boards. Okay. I'm not, positive on that but that's what I I think it is and he did in some of them because we have a a slight slope in the yard he had to use two stacked on top of each other and roll them together so it's a little deeper than eight inches in some spots but in a perfect world you're trying to get your your mostly your annuals to and your obviously dahlia tubers to get what like 12 inches of root space or at least yeah yeah, yeah. that's great. Well, yeah. you mentioned that you use organic methods and um, I can imagine where you're constantly just trying to add compost every year after, maybe after you've removed at the end of the season, removed everything to build that back up because you can't keep buying topsoil. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So we have that, that fill that we purchased as a base, but we do have a very large compost pile. And so we work that over every year and then we add that to the beds. Mm do the soil tests each year and then amend accordingly because the soil in those beds is changing a lot from year to year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to mention that because that's a hardship and you found a way around it because you're resilient and you're inventive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, Backyard Blooms is what it is. You're in your backyard, you live on your farm, um, but as you said, it's suburban. So there's traffic and, you know, neighbors and all. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the channels of business that you're you're bringing your flowers to market and who your customers are. Yeah, so we have several outlets. I sell wholesale through the Connecticut Flower Collective, which has been uh, a wonderful option. I sell retail. There's a very cute little gift shop in Trumbull called Pure Poetry, and she allows me to bring my bouquets there and sell oh. on consignment, which is uh-huh. lovely. And we sell subscriptions. So I do a a CSA. Um, I do DIY buckets, buckets of blooms on my website. And I do flowers on bouquets on demand. So I am a farmer florist. Mm -hmm. And I do the Trumbull Farmers Market. The Farmers Market, I realized, was a necessity. That was kind of a last-minute add-on. So I started with the CSA. My very first year, I did a tulip subscription. And so I I wanted to start very small, um, didn't have a ton of bulbs. So I was just going to offer 10 subscriptions and I filled the 10, but it was primarily my friends and family. Yeah. So you kind of just put the word out that I'm going to do this next spring. Do you want to get in on it? Yes, exactly. And so it was lovely that they were so supportive of what I was doing, but I realized right away, this isn't sustainable. I mean, I can't have my friends and family be my subscribers every year. (laughs) So, you know, I realized I said to to Pete, my husband, I said, "Um, I don't think the community really knows we're here. So we really need to do a farmer's market so that we're in, those are our people. These are people that appreciate locally grown. That's why they're there. They're obviously in the area. So we entered into that 
and we were in our second, just our second year mm-hmm. doing the farmer's market, mm-hmm. but that's been tremendous for networking with people in the community. And I feel like we're finally establishing that base of people who, who know we're there and come back repeatedly, which is wonderful. At the And you said it's a Thursday farmer's market. Is it like a afternoon, early it is, evening? It's 4 to 7 p.m. They have live music and um, they have like a craft station for kids. There's a ton of families that come out. That's really fun to see. And they try to break, um, change it up every week. So they'll do little scavenger hunts for the kids to to promote that for families. And so I love that little kids will come to the booth with their parents and they'll ask us questions. And sometimes they can, they don't even understand the question. Right? Like a, <laughs> it's on the scavenger hunt page or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a five-year-old who said, wanted to ask how many varieties do you grow? And they couldn't even say the word variety. You know, <laughs> it was just adorable. And so, but that was fun for me. So I said, do you know what a variety is? And he just shook his head. No, you know, it's like little deer in the headlights. And so I was able to pick up, I sell some flowers loose by the stem. So I was able to pick up a few and I say, you know, can you see how these are different? And he not, you know, he nodded and I said, well, that's what different varieties mean. They're different types of flowers. And so it's just, it's a lot of fun. So you really get the interaction there. They do, they do a nice job at the Trumbull market. From that um, point in the week, um, you've probably already supplied the wholesale flowers to the Connecticut Connecticut Flower Collective, which are your, your longer stems and maybe your higher value flowers. Do you, um, do you find that the farmer's market kind of is a way to just move product that you would otherwise just not, not cut or, you know, you'd toss? Absolutely. That's been such a benefit that came out of it that I wasn't anticipating. Our Connecticut Flower Collective Prime Market Day is Wednesday, although they have expanded this year and have some offerings on Thursday and Friday as well. But for me, because of the the farmer's market, I can't participate in the flower collective on Thursday, but it works out fine. I bring all my product on Wednesday and um, and then, as you said, those are my prime flowers. And, you know, the other blooms that I'm using for the farmer's market, they're beautiful, but they're just shorter. So they're not meeting that wholesale standard. Mm-hmm. But I'm putting together mason jar bouquets. And so actually something that's very long that I would sell wholesale doesn't work as well for the mason yeah. jars. So, yeah, it's definitely a way for me to use all of those other stems that I can't sell wholesale. Um, so that's yeah. been a real benefit. Well, like you mentioned in the video, you, the snaps that are kind of on their third or fourth cutting that are short, yes. I'm yes. picturing that those are going into your mason jar arrangements. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They are. That's yeah. really they're, the, they're the gift that keeps on giving those snapdragons. They're they're wonderful. <laughs> so the um, you mentioned that you uh, have the, the subscription program and the bu- buy the bucket. That's really more retail direct to consumer than... Um, that probably is, is even a, more profitable than a farmer's market uh, right. operation, right? Yes. And how much, How mu- like in terms of slicing up the pie, how much would that um, represent? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I only have last year as a basis. Mm-hmm. So I'm, um, that's when I was really involved in all of those markets. So I'm trying to, I would say, I would say that the wholesale might be the largest, although the DIY buckets of blooms would be close to that. And really? Then, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. They've been very popular. I think it's because a lot of the larger farms in Connecticut are pulling back a little bit on their mm-hmm. DIY buckets. Mm-hmm. I think that with COVID, people were a lot more adventurous into do-it-yourself. So it it surprised me with its popularity. In fact, the first year that we did it, <laughs> this is true confessions, it wasn't one of my business models. But someone just saw my website and contacted me and said, do you do buckets of flowers? And I said, sure. (laughs) (laughs) You say yes to everything at that point, right? (laughs) Exactly. And so this is part of what I love about the Flower Collective. I went there and talked to other farmers and was like, help. I said yes to something. I I don't have any idea what to charge. How many, you know, blooms do you put in a bucket? So it's just such a wonderful network of people Mm -hmm. that are part of that collective. So they kind of walked me through it. And so in that first year, last year, it really was, it wasn't part of my website. So it was just people that that just asked the question okay. randomly. And I had not as much last year because of that, but yeah. still just finding me, searching me out that way, I'd say I did maybe six, yeah. you know, which, which wasn't bad. But then I realized right away that I really love doing that. So I made it part of my website. I have a whole FAQ sheet describing it. And so this year, I mean, I, I'm doing several buckets a week almost. Wow. And yeah, are they people who want to have just fun with flowers or are they throwing dinner parties or are they trying to do a DIY wedding or all of the above? It's all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, some of the stories have surprised me. I had one woman who told me she was traveling with the flowers and I made the mistake of assuming that she was traveling you know, locally, it was for a dinner party. I knew that. And then I had all of her flowers collected. And I think it was the night before I was delivering them. She sent me an email and she said, "Um, so do you have any recommendations for how to help these survive a a plane trip to Europe? Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. That, you know, so that informs me next time I shouldn't make any assumptions on where people are traveling with them. So that was crazy for me, because if I had known that that would have informed different choices I would have made Mm -hmm. for what I was giving her something that I know is a lot more durable. Uh, Yeah. So our straw flower or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, So our flowers went to Croatia. (laughs) That's where she was traveling to from Connecticut. Uh, What a compliment. I wanted to also just try to picture where you are in relationship to the Connecticut Flower Collective. Where is that? And like how, how many, what's the radius of people who sell there and buy there? Yeah, I know that we have a farm, a rather large farm in Massachusetts that contributes. But yeah, you've, you're sort of centrally located in the Northeast that way. Yes, they've tried to pick a location that's right in the middle of the state, which of course is smart for all of the surrounding states. So, I mean, that's the advantage of Connecticut is so small that if you travel in any direction for an hour, you're in another state. <laughs> it's about a 40 minute drive hmm. for me. But there are other growers like myself down in this area. So we carpool. Mm. So I, wow. I connect with others. There's, you know, Appleberry Farm in Newtown. Mm-hmm. There's Quality Daffs, the Spring Bunch in in Shelton. These are all surrounding communities. And um, so we will we will car 
we will carpool, you know, we'll text each other. I need to go this week. Are you, I can take your flowers, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, wow. That's But the other advantage of the collective, a lot of times, even if someone else is driving that week, sometimes I'll make the trip anyway, because sometimes I'm there as a buyer, not just as a seller. And that's such an advantage to be part of a collective as a small grower. If I have a week where I'm doing four DIY buckets, the farmer's market, I have wholesale orders, et cetera. Sometimes I don't have enough subscriptions as well to, I, I get a little nervous about yeah. it to, yeah. to meet all those needs. So sometimes I'll come in and I'll shop the floor myself. And I always tell people that like with their buckets that I sometimes I'll acquire blooms from other growers. I'm always upfront about it, um, but there are other local growers like myself and no one seems to have an issue with that. And they'd rather have the abundance of blooms than, than get it strictly just from my farm. Yeah. I love it. And part, part of the education too. I remember when I had uh, some folks from the uh, Connecticut Flower Collective on the podcast last year. In fact, I'll find that link and share that episode when when, when we post yours. Um, that was one of the comments that I heard is the, like your ear, others, each other's best customers. You do, yes. you're, you're hopefully you're you're selling more than you're spending, but some some weeks is probably <laughs> a good yeah. a good way to 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 justify uh, the trip up there is that you're selling and um, also saving yourself another trip to to go buy. Um, exactly. The reason you're buying also is because you're doing some, some uh, wedding designs or some custom orders for, exactly. for clients, yes. right? Yes. And those are really on demand. So <clears throat> mm-hmm. I'm not anticipating it. So when I've already committed to some DIY buckets, and of course the farmer's market is an ongoing commitment and someone's already had a pre-order for through the collective. I I can't always anticipate some weeks I'll have bouquet requests, some weeks I don't. But inevitably when I have the most going on, then someone will contact me and say, I need five centerpieces for a shower. Can you help? And I, you know, my theory is if I can manage the time to do it, I'd rather, I'd rather supplement with other blooms and make this happen because you know, something like a shower, other people see them. It's a good networking practice. Absolutely, yeah. So I think it pays off. What I have done is gone, (laughs) like last year, I went through and organized, the way I keep track of everything, I keep track of my Connecticut Flower Collective purchases. And I was able to look at how many flowers I, what what did I buy the most of? And I saw that I bought a lot of forget-me-nots. I needed, I was lacking in fillers. And so that helped inform my choices then for the next year. That was one reason that I did the forget-me-nots in my garden this year was because I saw, oh, I, I bought a lot of those. Why don't I grow them? You know, That's so, amazing. And that blue is just so hard to come by that oh, you now is. have this blue option for people. Yeah. And I love it. <clears throat> That's a really good way to do research. I, I appreciated what you said about constantly as as you know you're still in your you know you're still young you said in our webinar that a, a new our young farmer or a new farmer is anyone who's less than five years in which I hadn't heard but that makes sense um <clears throat> so you're kind of doing this evaluation in real time about what crops are winners and then what you can let go of and maybe replace next year exactly. and you, you probably have a lot more evaluation to do Yes, I do. Yes. In fact, the first year of growing, I I had said to Pete, 
I have so much that I don't have enough. And what I meant by that was I had tried so many different varieties, but I only had like maybe 20 of these and 20 of these. And so I realized that I have to be very careful with my experimentation. I need to keep trialing new things because I want to find those flowers that really work the best for us with our soil, our conditions, our time. And I'm going to learn that by experimenting with new things every year. But I, I have to still have a bulk of things that I know that I can rely on. And so that was a lesson that I learned early on. It's hard. So. It's I think it's really hard. And I've watched that arc of, of um, kind of becoming more disciplined, the more seasoned yeah. grower is to the point where, you know, you might have to kill some of your darlings because they're not profitable. And yes. this isn't a hobby. Yes, that's true. It is so hard for me to be ruthless. I have to say that's one of the toughest things, but you have to be ruthless lovingly. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. And so last year I tried pansies. There's varieties that, that grow long and that are beautiful for cut flower production. What I didn't realize when I grew them was that they really needed to be started in the fall if you want to have that length. I started mine in very early spring, so I was hopeful that they would do okay because they're very cold tolerant. Right. Um, but they were coming up, they were, you know, like just these teeny little things. And so for a while, I, I just, they were beautiful, but they were so short. And I thought, I have to pull these out. It just, it kills me. <laughs> so for a while, I tried just cutting the 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 flower heads and selling just that, you know, because they're often used for cake decorating right. and that sort of right. thing. And some people do sell them that way at the collective. You can get them just in a little plastic container and it's mm-hmm. just the flower heads. Um, but I knew really, I, I tried Down. it. For, yeah, <laughs> I tried, but eventually we yanked them out and then I can put sunflowers in there because I can plant those later in the season. They're still going to spring up. And that's what I ended up doing. And the sunflowers were quite profitable in September. So it was all good. But yes, especially on a small farm, you can't have wasted space. Mm-hmm. You've got to maximize it. So Janet, do you have, you You showed us the Lysianthus and Dahlia beds, which are the newer beds. Do you still have further um, lawn that you can dig up and, and, and expand or are you kind of at capacity now? Well, barely. So we're mm-hmm. going to add two more. <laughs> Shh, don't tell my husband. <laughs> He won't hear this. <laughs> he won't watch this. Yeah, all right. Um, so where we had the Lysianthus planted and the new dahlia bed, they they go. They're a different orientation than the other beds are. So the the we have twelve that are what I call vertical rows, and mm-hmm. that's just their orientation to the house. Mm-hmm. Then we added two more that are horizontal. So those horizontal beds we can extend out a little further. Okay, that's what you're talking about then. Yes, the, the and so I'm going to add to those horizontal beds. So they're 25 feet. I'll have a little gap in between and be able to do another two 25 foot rows. And wow. then we have pretty much officially used every square inch that we have. <laughs> well, can you talk a little bit about what you alluded to in our um, in the webinar about planning to uh, find land el- elsewhere for, I'm assuming that would be like an annex farm, right? Or yes. would it be, would you move everything? Well, I'm not sure exactly how we'll make this work logistically. Ideally, in time, I do want to live where I farm. I don't want to be commuting to a farm every day. Yeah. 
So I'm not sure how it will work, but what we're doing right now is just looking for land and it will just be an annex. And Mm -hmm. then the hope is that over time, once we get that built up, that we could, if there's, um, that we could possibly build a home on that property, Mm -hmm. sell our own home and move and, and use that to, to build on the land we'd be displaced for a little while. So I'm not sure again, how that's all going to work out. Um, we've thought about leasing land, maybe just in the meantime, just leasing something. And then when we're ready to move, then just move to a house that has a couple of acres on it. The problem with that is that if I were to lease for a couple of years and putting all this blood, sweat and tears into land that, you know, I'm not yeah. going to for very yeah. long. Yeah, I understand and, that. Yeah. So it's interesting. We're talking with, there's a land trust in the area and they're very open to us farming some of their land. That could be a wonderful annex solution for us in the short term. So there's definitely options. But one thing that I learned about is that the University of Connecticut Agricultural Department has people that help you navigate this if you're a new farmer. So we're actually getting on a phone call with someone from UConn. I think our appointment is in a couple of weeks and they're going to help us find land or talk through all of those details. What are the options available to us in leasing and buying the um, uh, grants that could help and that sort of thing? And it's a free service if you're a new farmer. I think the first time that you have a call and then subsequent calls you pay for, but we're definitely going to take advantage of that. And it's good to know that's out there. I'm sure that's available in other states for their university programs. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, what it reveals is that you have, you're still in the exploratory stage. This will be a kind of a multi-year process. Um, and right now, most everything that you're growing, that's the annuals. It's not like you have to move them. You'd be moving things like digging up dahlia tubers. You don't really have a lot of perennials really that you're integrating into your business. Do you? I don't because I don't have a lot of room for them. I have perennials in the front yard Mm -hmm. that have been there forever since before we started flower farming. So some of them are usable, some of them are not. I'm I'm definitely moving towards more native perennials. So there are a few gaps in the front yard where I'm filling in with native perennials that I know we can use for cuts. Mm. Um, we, we participate in pollinator pathways. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with that? We have something like that here in Seattle too. That it, I'm assuming it's just to cry, try to create pollinator plants throughout a neighborhood or in an area, right? Yes, exactly. To connect, I guess the radius, I'm not that knowledgeable on the radius that pollinators travel, but there is a limit. And if they, if they're in one garden, but there's a huge open space and nothing for them to, to land on within, you know, I don't know how many yards or feet or or miles, they don't really move beyond that. They'll just stay contained in an area. And so the idea is to help develop the pollinator population that you want to have these pathways and they the pollinators it makes sense they're much more attractive to native plantings than they are to what's imported uh so so we're really focusing on native growth but i would like to really expand on peonies i mm-hmm. love them they're one of my favorite flowers so 
that's something I would like to invest more in, but I feel like we're in this limbo phase where if we're not going to be here very long, do I want to invest in a lot of peonies in the land? Right, right. I can take them with me, but when you uproot them, it takes them about three years to really get well yeah, enough established, exactly. right? Might as well just wait, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there are perennials I would love to invest more in, but I just don't feel like we're in a place right now where we can do that yeah. till we have a few more answers to what our next move is. Oh my gosh. Well, good luck on that. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit before we wrap up about your influences. You have this background as a graphic designer. How long did you work as a graphic designer and like what kind of work did you do? And do you see that that kind of, I don't know, your visual aesthetic popping up in your floral arranging? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I didn't know that I... You know, I think it's hard sometimes for when you're in the arts to know that you have a style. For some people, it's very clear. For others, it's not. I felt that I was much more eclectic in the graphic design field. But some, but people would look at my work and say, oh, you have a style. And it's interesting because I think I I do really, you know, I didn't really see it. <laughs> well, especially um, if you're working for clients and you're, you're kind of trying to meet their style requests, exactly. you don't always did, see it, right? That's exactly right. I did a lot of freelance work and I felt like, you know, if this was for a younger audience, I tried to make it more edgy. And if it was for a more traditional audience, I tried to make a more traditional design. And so I, I did feel like I was always catering to my audience and I didn't know that my own style, it makes sense that it would shine through, but I, it was hard for me to see that. So um, when it came to, I did graphic design for about 12 years. Okay. Prior to that, I had worked in a corporation and then um, my degree was actually, my bachelor's degree was in education, okay. but I'd never gotten into it. I had mm -hmm. children. I was a stay-at-home mom for a number of years. And what got me into graphics was that I thought, okay, it's time when my kids were all in school, it's time to, to start using that education degree. But I thought if I'm going to teach, I want to teach art because I've always loved that. I hadn't really had any art courses. So uh, in order to teach art, I had to get a certification. So I went back to school in my 40s and got certified in art and graphic design. And once I got in those classes, I realized, oh, you know what? I don't, I still don't want to teach. This is what I want to do full time. So I love it. Yeah. So I did that for about 12 years. And then uh, as much as I loved that, I was tired of being in front of a computer screen mm -hmm. all the day, all, all day long. Nature has always been at the heart of what I do. And that's why you know, I had said when we had that talk yesterday with Madison Square Park, um, it was just very serendipitous. I see this book about flower farming and I and I just realized all of a sudden in this moment, hey, this this takes everything I've always loved. The nature this flowers are art in nature. Absolutely. I've always loved nature. I've always loved art. This is the perfect combination. I'm not in front of a computer screen all day. I love working with my hands. And that's really just what launched that in the mm -hmm. last three years. Mm -hmm. I would say with making bouquets, I definitely do have a style. And what's fun is that when people see it at the farmer's market, they say, um, someone said, it's like a curated wildflower look. And, and I love that. It's a that. huge it compliment. Made, yeah, it, it made me happy. And I realized <laughs> that they they describe a wildflower look because they're they're used to a very different look usually mm -hmm. from you know if you order from FTD or or go to most flower shops there's a very standard look and mine don't fit that standard yeah. look yeah. 
Maybe there's so a more mind, a stiffer look and not so naturalistic, right? Yes, it's yeah. very naturalized, exactly. Yeah. But they could tell it's not just that I threw things in a vase. So the fact that they said it was curated, I thought, okay, I like that. I yeah, like that can be your new tagline. Yes, curated <laughs> but, wildflowers. But you had mentioned also like color is always factoring into yeah. your graphic design and that you're obviously <clears throat> thinking about that when you're choosing what to grow and yes. how it, how you can use it in design. So Yes, that's true. And that's part of what drew me to the arts. I've always loved color. Um, I tend to like more subtle colors. So even though I love color, I'm not typically a bold, loud person, but mm-hmm. I love experimenting with those colors. Mm-hmm. If someone calls for that in their bouquet, it's fun to always break out of what your normal sure. mold is. Sure. So, so never um, say never about certain colors, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, I've had the most fun with some colors that I would have never chosen myself, but when I'm choosing it for someone else and thinking through, okay, I have this bright red color and how can I, how can I pull other colors into that and have a bridge color that's going to blend those? What complements this to make this pop more? So all of that that I've learned in, in art design is, is really a real yeah. boon to that. Well, I, I can't help but uh, look at the flowers over your left shoulder there. They are so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And you've got dahlias and zinnias. What else is in that vase? There's a little lisianthus in there. This is really the last of everything on the farm. So this is quite a combination. I've got some scabiosa in there. Yeah, a lot of zinnias, a little monarda, I think is still mm. in there. Love in a puff is the little vine. You yes. probably can't see that that well in there, but it's charming. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Thank you. Um, well, I was wanting to ask you when you're at the farmer's market, are you the only uh, flower farmer or um, are you know, is that an advantage? I know some people don't have that kind of uh, luxury. Yeah, no, I am. And I'm very grateful for that because hmm. you never want to get in a position where you're undercutting each other price-wise. As other growers have said, neither one of you benefit from that kind of competition. So I am the only one there. There are some um, vegetable farms and some of them will have just some loose zinnias because they've had those or they'll have maybe some hanging baskets, but that it's nothing like what I'm producing. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I I appreciate that in a farmer's market when they limit the vendors um, so that you're not competing directly against each other. Yeah. And even if somebody did come in, I mean, I'm imagining you've got the, you're established now, you're, you've got the the following. And so. Right. Right. Which would be hard for them. So. Yeah. I mean, if it was me and I was new going in, I would try to look at what, you know, Janet was growing and try to grow something completely different just to differentiate myself. Yes, so you would but, hope. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, so we talked about your new, uh, your, your search for land and constantly evaluating for new uh, varieties that you want to grow. Do you have any other projects in, in play that you're hoping to implement next year or is, is your plate very full right now? My plate's very full, but I'm always thinking of new ideas. So mm-hmm. I mentioned how much I love the DIY buckets. I think part of that, I am an extrovert and I I get so invested when these people come to me, you know, they're saying, I'll ask, is this for a birthday party? You know, it informs the choices yeah. that you're making. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not trying to pry, but it, it helps me make good decisions for what their event is. And and inevitably, we get in this exchange, and I get so excited for what they're doing. Um, I love that. It's, it's just the extrovert in me. So I'm like, really? You're having a party? 
okay, you know, <laughs> let me help. Let me give you some ideas. I, I almost yeah. want to be there. That's just my personality. Like, I love very, it. Um, it's very fun to make these connections. That's the the connections in the flower farming. I I love that, and so I find that that's what the farmers market does. That's what the DIY buckets do. I ask them, you know, if you think of it when you're done, would you send me pictures of how the bouquets came out? Um, and so we still have exchanges even when the when the event's over. And um, and so as I've done more and more of these what I've realized is that people really, they want to do their own events, but they maybe don't have the full confidence in their abilities. So one idea I've had is something that's kind of a hybrid, which again, isn't easy for me to do in the space that I have right now, but thinking ahead when we have land, more land, I would love to offer something that is like a workshop Mm -hmm. for DIY people that you know, they want to do their own, but they want a little guidance and it's coaching. Yes, exactly. Like a little DIY coaching, something simple. It's still going to keep, I I need to be mindful that sometimes they're doing DIY, not because they want to, but so much, but because they have a very restricted budget. So you have to be mindful of that, but that's something I've often thought of. I can see a need there and I would love to get involved in, in that kind of a teaching moment. I was going to say, that's the kind of teaching you'll enjoy doing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Finally, use that teaching degree. Right, right. I love it. Well, this yeah. has been so much fun. I feel like getting to know you has been uh, a real reward for me to just see how you've built your business. And I know it's going to inspire other, inspire others, uh, especially people who are pivoting away from corporate careers or looking at their backyards and thinking about what they can do. And I'm sure you're, you're realistic and when you talk to people about how much work it is, but yes. you're not sitting behind a computer, you're out there treating your mental health and caring for it and getting all those endorphins from being out in nature and growing. So it's probably been a positive uh, lifestyle change for you too. Yes, it really has been. I was most concerned about my husband because he helps so much, but he's got his day job. So he's in front of a computer screen all day. And then I'm asking him to help me in evenings, weekends, And I thought this might be a little too much for him. His job is really demanding, but he finds when he's out there helping, it doesn't feel like it's work. Mm. It is work. It's hard work. It takes a lot, but there is something that's regenerative about Mm -hmm. it at the same time. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to minimize that, you know, when you're out there, it's like, oh, this is wonderful. Sometimes, sometimes I've been in tears in my yard. It's pouring. I'm trying to get some some tulips pulled up by the bulb and they're sticking in the ground and I mean you know there's yeah. definitely moments of frustration or something isn't working the way I need it to work or producing well but there is still something about being outside and being in nature and working with your hands that even when you're working hard and you're sweating I come inside and I feel like I I feel it's fed me it's fed yes. my soul yes that's rewarding I yes, love it. it and you're feeding other people too. Yes. Well, I will come visit when I come to Connecticut. Um, I would I will, love that. <laughs> yes. And I'll have to ask my mom for the old address so I can figure out where I was on drumming. I will take you on a tour. Yes. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Thank you so much. And Janet, I do uh, want to, ho- I'm hoping that when we post this at slowflowerspodcast.com, I'll in the show notes, I can show some of your uh, um, 
curated wildflower arrangements uh, if okay. you share some photos. I know you just sent me a big a big folder. I just haven't dug deep into look at them yet. So thank you for that. Yeah. And uh, we'll also share Backyard Bloom's uh, social places so people can find you and follow along. Uh, and th thanks so much. This has really been fun. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thanks so much for joining me today. You can visit slowflowerspodcast.com to watch the replay video of today's conversation. Look for episode 577. I'll also include links to Backyard Blooms, Social Places, and two other resources. The replay video of our Slow Flowers presentation recorded on August 18th for the Madison Square Park Conservancy, and a link to my Slow Flowers podcast episode 494 which features farmer florist Haley Billup of Eddy Farm and the Connecticut Flower Collective. Our next sponsor thanks goes to Cal Flowers, the leading floral trade association in California, providing valuable transportation and other benefits to flower growers and the entire floral supply chain in California and 48 other states. The association is a leader in bringing fresh-cut flowers to the U.S. market and in promoting the benefits of flowers to new generations of American consumers. Learn more at cafgs.org. And thank you to Details Flowers Software, a platform specifically designed to help florists and designers do more and earn more. With an elegant and easy-to-use system, Details improves profitability, productivity, and organization for floral businesses of all shapes and sizes. Grow your bottom line through professional proposals and confident pricing with Details All-in-One Platform. All friends of the Slow Flowers Podcast will receive a seven-day free trial of Details Flowers software. You can learn more at detailsflowers.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor downloaded more than 900,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowersociety.com and consider making a donation to sustain Slow Flowers' ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button at slowflowerspodcast.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flowers Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one base at a time. I'll see you then.